This is Talking Ears. My name is Frank Wardinger. And I'm super excited because I'm here with producer Juan Vasquez, and we have a great guest today. Juan, who, who do we have with us? I'm really excited to introduce Benj Cantors, a mutual friend and mentor of ours who can talk about sound and music in a way that is just so enriching. He is a audio engineer who talks about audiology and auditory physiology in this manner that is eye-opening. It's also very exciting to hear his background with doing studio work and live sound for folk and jazz musicians, and also the outreach that he's done for musicians and audiologists. And one big outreach that he does is this seminar that he actually tours around the country with called Here Tomorrow. It's a version of an auditory physiology class that he teaches to audio engineering students over at Columbia College. It was an amazing experience to be able to talk with him today. Yeah, and I, I just love hearing him talk about this stuff. We'll also be hearing some music by guitarist and composer Dave Wright with his new album, There and Gone, and a couple tracks from an album of his that I played on some 20 years ago called Conspired Chaos. I had already been teaching a hearing class but I was at a technical meeting, and Bob Shuline was there, and Michael, and Brian Flieger, and Bob Shuline goes, well, uh, it's typical for the technical committees to do a presentation to the AES in general about what we do. Well, it should be about, you know, uh, physiology, loss, and conservation. And I go, well, that's what I do in my course. So my, the course studies in hearing had already existed. This is 2007. So seven years into the development of my course, and I'm sitting there, well, that's what I teach. I said, it's 15 weeks long. Bob just immediately goes, well, could you make it an hour and a half? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And that was the beginning of the Hearing Conservation Workshop and Here Tomorrow. And I did my first two workshops with dear friends at Southern Illinois University and at, uh, at NYU. That's when my real work in hearing advocacy really started because it was... It was, it was moving out of me personally. It was moving out of my teaching environment in the audio program in audio arts and acoustics at Columbia College. It was a couple of years later that, you know, we kind of go, well, we really need to have a conference. And that was like 2010. And that's when the first conference was being designed. For the AES, you mean? Yeah, the music-induced hearing disorders. And that was spring-summer of 2012. And I was able to get space at Columbia for free. And we literally converted a space into a, con into a conference center, into a convention center. Nineteen seventy-three was my beginning in the music industry at a place called Amazing Grace, yeah. which some listeners may know about. And it was a little, at the time, a literally a folk coffee house. No joke, I had a little Shure M688 mixer. Amazing Grace already existed, and two of the folks there were old friends of mine from the radio station. And they go, hey, we're doing a bigger show, and we need a mixer, and you want to bring your mixer, and why don't you come and help us? <laughs> I mean, it was, that's, what, that's how it all started. Yeah. And so that's when I started to really get involved in music and live music. Mm -hmm. In 1974, there were 13 people running it. We split in half, and half went to Eugene, Oregon, and half stayed in Chicago. And we opened what became one of the best clubs in Chicago, 400 seats. We decided that we were going to get a really good sound system, and we had studio-grade equipment in our PA system. Yeah. We were using Electrovoice studio monitors as our PA speakers, 
powered by Dynaco 400 watt amplifiers. And um, we were the first to be using condenser microphones and, and this microphone I'm using right now is one of, our, one of the microphones. I mean, we were using high quality studio microphones in a PA situation and moving into jazz and as well as folk. And so people like Gary Burton and Keith Jarrett and Jack DeJanette and the band Oregon, as well as people like Emmy Lou Harris and Steve Goodman. I mean, it was folk and jazz. Yeah. Which gets to another point that Frank and I were talking about. What, you know, were the elements of my background that kind of put me on this path toward hearing? And it was basically, we were presenting music we liked. Yeah. We were impresarios. We were just known for high quality sound. But the other thing was, since it was folk and jazz, it wasn't loud. And, and if we had a loud band, we never invited them back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, of course, we also found they tended to draw a rowdier audience, so we didn't like them either, you know. So, um, and, and uh, the, the, one of the big stories was Roy Buchanan, this legendary, you know, rock guitarist. And so, oh, man, Roy Buchanan. And he was so freaking loud. Mm -hmm. um, and we just, we said, no more of this. That was kind of our, my beginning in a certain way of just being aware of volume. Yeah. After Amazing Grace closed in 1978, I actually went on the road. I was Pat Metheny's first sound man. Yeah. And so that again is you know moderate volume in medium-sized venues. My last show with Pat was at Avery Fisher Hall, opening for Al Jarreau. Um, and so it was it was a really it was a great time to to be started in audio because the styles of music that were popular weren't fundamentally loud. And then I kind of moved into the studio. It was called Studio Media Recording. My, my reputation in folk and jazz followed me into the studio. Not that I didn't do the occasional metal band or funk band. By and large, my work was folk and jazz. So again, moderate levels. Yeah. There was some point in my years at Studio Media and my, my, my buddies, Scott Steinman, who was my partner, and Dave Appelt, uh, who was our technical engineer, and he's now out freelancing in L.A. We all kind of realized, you know, after a couple hours and things get loud, you just don't know what you're hearing anymore. Mm -hmm. And we, we called it kind of a, an intoxication. Okay. So we went down to the radio shack that was literally two blocks down and yeah. picked up a, 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 an SPL meter, a sound level meter. And, yeah, we noticed, yeah, things creeped up to about 100. It's time to stop. Let's, let's time for lunch. Yeah. I can see by the meter here that it's time to have a break. <laughs> Boy, we've mentioned the Radio Shack SPL meter so many times already, but like it's this one little tool that's just ubiquitous and <laughs> just everybody's got well, three of them. Well, you know, it's um, this is a tangent. And if any, the whole thing's a tangent, Benj. Well, talk to my students. They'll say, yeah, he goes off on these tangents sometimes. And sometimes I can follow and sometimes I can't. Anyway, we should talk about waiting. In my course, there's an assignment, getting to know DBA. <laughs> That's not the exact title. Once upon a time, uh, before apps, uh, we literally had a collection of about 30 or 40 Radio Shack sound level meters. Yeah. The assignment was check out a sound level meter and spend two days measuring stuff. Yeah. And, and here's the NIOSH OSHA chart. One starts at 90, one starts at 85, 3 dB exchange, 5 dB exchange. I said, look, you're musicians. You're so sensitive to timbre and tone and pitch, you can be just as sensitive to loudness, mm -hmm. level, 
and I know there's a difference. But the point is, standing under the L on Wabash Avenue in Chicago, and the L roars by, is about 95. Yeah. And they go, oh, that's 95. And so they get this understanding of what levels are. A quiet room is going to be 40. My, I monitor somewhere between 70 and 80. And when it starts creeping up to 90, it's sounding loud. And they start to get that, can make that connection. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line to all this is that the sound level meter is like one of the most important and easy tools to acquire, either as a musician or a sound engineer, to get to know what that stuff is. Mm-hmm. And, and to go, oh, well, that really wasn't safe. Yeah. <laughs> really, you know. Consider the experience that you are having, or maybe that somebody else is having, because it's somebody on the street using a jackhammer without hearing protection. Or better than that is, the person using jackhammer is, does, has hearing protection, but the two guys who are watching them yep. about 10 feet away don't have the hearing protection on. Oh, I'm not using it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so these are the sorts of things where the kids begin to realize what meaningful measurement really mm-hmm. is. Functional distance, functional time use, and actually right. applying that to the, to the, use, to the use case. To, to, to the question of risk. Yes. You know, you know, Michael Lawrence talks about ethics, which is brilliant. Uh-huh. And I really respect what he's doing. And I was so excited to hear him talk on, your, on, on, this, on this podcast. And I realized what I'm talking about is people being able to assess risk. Yeah. What's my risk? Yeah. Because then it's about... This, it's about, and this is really big and what I've always talked about, hopefully by the end of my class or by the end of my seminar, people take ownership, mm-hmm. ownership of their hearing. You know, you both know when, when the audiologist tells me, well, you shouldn't do that. Well, you just want to do that because everybody comes, becomes a four-year-old, right? <laughs> but when they kind of go, oh, I'm hurting myself. Right. And of course, here's where the term injury that Michael Santucci coined becomes really, really important. Yeah. You're injuring yourself. Mm-hmm. No, I just, Benj, I love the, the emphasis on education that you have. You know, I remember listening to you and claiming that ownership. You know, I just feel like I just get that, that insight again and that motivation to do that every time, you know. So uh, I think you certainly have that impact. I've heard you and all of this very select little community of, of, of music and sound aware audiologists. Uh, Frank and I were chatting about this and I, 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 I take some pleasure in feeling like I know all of them. <laughs> I know all of you guys. <laughs> and, and some are my former students, but many are just, you know, by way of NHCA networks like Sensophonics, you know, we have this slowly growing community of music aware audiologists. But I think that's one of the biggest things because, again, both of you, you, know, you, you both understand, um, my thing is education mm-hmm. and giving people an easy way to understand how delicate their hearing is. I mean, you yeah. know, I've, here's, here's another one I, I always do. I say, okay, how many people here enjoy a sunny day lying out on a field staring into the sun? And <laughs> a third of them all chuckle. Yeah, <laughs> I said, how many here enjoy a concert standing in front of the speaker stack? And a third of the hands go up. And I go, hello, where do we get off thinking that our ears are any more bulletproof than our eyes? Mm. I have all these little sayings. We know more and do more for every other part of our body. Yeah. 
right? Go to your local Dwayne Reed, Walgreens, CVS, and you'll see rows and rows of products for every part of your body mm-hmm. and maybe six inches of shelf space devoted to your ears. Yep. And at that, it's like tinnitus relief. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff that doesn't, doesn't have any value. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. That's brilliant. But, um, yeah. What you experienced was the flip side version of certainly my course, yeah. which is giving audio students a sense of, he- of the hearing mechanism. And I realized, well, okay, I've been teaching audiology to audio students. I'll teach audio to audiology people. Yeah. In, 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 in the same way that I was kind of turned on to audiology by Professor Jonathan Siegel at Northwestern University. <laughs> he, is, he is the primary person to blame for what I am today. <laughs> Because he's, I'm sitting there in class and he's explaining stuff about the hearing mechanism and he's talking, you know, resonance and impedance and transformer function. I'm going, this is freaking audio. Mm-hmm. This is audio biology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was that kind of, you know, that was the other pivotal point in my professional career um, when I, you know, at the ripe age of 48, I went back to school to get my music technology degree. Mm-hmm. And my advisor and good friend, Gary Kendall, said, you know, there's this guy, John Siegel. You should take his course. I think you'd like it. <laughs> and, and then the rest is history. And, but- the, and, the, and that was the start of it. And John and I are still, you know, colleagues and friends. And, and uh, I got to know uh, most of the, the faculty at, at Northwestern and... Um, actually served on the Knowles uh, advisory board oh, for yeah? a number of years. Yep. Very cool. Well, wow. the thing that strikes me and the thing that I think, um, I wish that there was a way to make the listener understand that this isn't just hyperbole, but the way that you present the ideas, the facts, the the information is through what I can only describe as like practical analogies. You bring props, you bring gear and you demonstrate oh, yeah. it in a way that Show I've, and tell. I've never heard explained <laughs> before. You explain what a compressor is and isn't. What you're doing, and I don't know if, if this is your actual intent, maybe I should be quiet and let you talk, but you're making a thing visible and tangible that is sound, is invisible, intangible, and you're, cr- you're making it visible and tangible, and that's so cool. Well, well, that's, one of the, well that's one of the key things that, 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 that music, sound, and audio, music, Audio and audiology people all share this dilemma. We're dealing with a a colorless, odorless, tasteless phenomena. It goes to this, what I call a cultural ignorance. What we are finally winning is we're getting past the ignorance of audio and sound and hearing. But you're right. To quote Bob Dylan, I'm just a song and dance man. To demonstrate what a speaker is doing by turning the oscillator all the way down to two hertz, all of a sudden people can go, oh, the cone's moving back and forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so all of a sudden the term vibration has a whole new meaning, which I call displacement. Mm-hmm. It's displacing. It's going back and forth. It's going back and forth really, really fast, so fast that you can maybe not even feel it, right? You can 
feel the cone at low frequencies. You can feel that it's vib- going moving back and forth. But you turn it up to 500 hertz, you can't feel it anymore. You can hear it. Mm-hmm. The demonstration is what's really, really important from the standpoint of audio. And from the standpoint of teaching hearing, I've just got a collection of animations and videos and clips that I play that sort of in a logical progression, I literally go outer ear, middle ear, inner ear. And I start with this brilliant diagram by Jim Yost, who now teaches at Arizona State. He used to be at at Loyola. This brilliant diagram that kind of explains, yeah, the outer ear is acoustic energy and the middle ear is mechanical energy and the inner ear is hydraulic energy, you Mm -hmm. know, and then it becomes neural, you know, and then so the people begin to realize this is a complex process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't it amazing that it works at all? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, 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 dozens of times in the course of the semester, I say, this shouldn't work. Yes. And then because it's delicate, because it's fancy, because it's incredible, because it's miraculous, mm-hmm. we should care more? Do you take it to that oh, why step or do you... That, that becomes... Okay. I want to hear. Here's, here's the hearing conservation workshop. The first slides are, we just don't think about hearing. Mm-hmm. We are visually oriented, right? I read you loud and clear. I can read them like a book, mm-hmm. right? Hearsay. Uh, it's only hearsay. I mean, it's in our language, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we're so visually oriented and and not orally oriented. And uh, my other big one is we've had mass producible print, visual print, for five hundred years. We've had mass producible audio for a little over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So there's a four hundred year jump, <laughs> right, on the visual. Yeah. Modern audiology really didn't start until Harvey Fletcher started doing his work at Bell Labs in the 30s. We have Harvey Fletcher in the 30s. We have Von Bakeshi in 1961, who all of a sudden goes, oh, frequency selectivity, right? And then in the late 90s into 2000, we have Hudspeth and Peter Dallas figuring out the outer hair cells, right? I mean, so audiology is really young. And then I go, okay, let's talk the ear. The next third of the lecture of the presentation is literally a crash course in, in, in physiology. Here's how the outer ear works. Here's what's going on. Here's the EQ of the outer ear. Oh, wow, look at that, look at that bump at, at 4K, <laughs> right? Oh, what do you know? Okay, I let it go. Um, then we go into the middle ear, and I talk about the transformer function, and I talk to audio kids about transformers. I go, you know transformers. Mm-hmm. We have them all over the place in audio. Guess what? Your middle ear is a transformer, too, because there's an impedance mismatch. And I go into that. Um, and so they're going, oh, this is, I understand all this stuff. They get it. I'm talking their language. Yeah. And then I get into the inner ear, and I play this wonderful piece by Hudspeth. You've probably seen it. It's the unrolling of the cochlea and toccata yeah. fugue in D minor. And the, you know, okay, and that's what's going on in your ear, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, you know? And then I talk a little bit, I talk about inner and outer hair cells. I said, this is where the information, here's the inner hair cells. They're the listening cells. And now check this out. And I show them outer hair cells. And there's a beautiful Wada Lab image of, the, of a, an outer hair cell flexing. Yep. And again, these are sound students. They understand gain structure. I say, here's the gain structure of the outer hair cell. And that language really helps. Well, of course. Yeah. I'm talking to them in their own language. I say, look, when, you're, when things are really quiet, you need help. The outer hair cells give you the help. And I literally mm-hmm. show, I show them in, in the graph, it literally shows 
60 dB of gain. I was just going to say, the thing that stuck with me the most, I think that the phrase that stuck with me the most is like, when I went to your first seminar, I was just only six years maybe out of music school and a fresh audiologist, big eyes. I was sitting there thinking, okay, I'm understanding. I'm understanding the, the analogies. This is fantastic. Great way of talking about it. And then you said the outer hair cells have 60 dB of gain. And I thought, my, my mic pre barely has 60 right. dB of gain. That's a typical mic pre. What? Like right. that's insane. You know, and then, and then, you know, and then of course, and then I go, okay. And now if you always you know, so it's an amplifier, cool. 60 dB. Yeah. But if it was 60 dB all the time, yeah. then when the actual sound pressure was 60 dB, you'd be at the threshold of pain. Yeah. So what's going on? I said, they turn themselves down. Mind-blowing. <laughs> they are self-regulated. Exactly. Well, you know what? I, I, I've known that for years. And then later, again, a little tangent, I was literally sitting in a, at dinner with Mario Ruggiero at Northwestern, who was Peter Dallas's assistant in the outer hair cell work. I said, Mario, so what about this variable gain? He goes, we're really not sure yet. <laughs> We know there are some neural connections that are regulating the outer hair cells, but we think some of it's in the cell itself. Literally cellular intelligence, which is mind-blowing, right? But then if you're listening loud, the first thing to go are the outer hair cells. Mm -hmm. What happens if the inner hair cells go? Then they got nothing. <laughs> but the outer hair cells, then you lose gain function and your thresholds go up. But they don't go up the same because... Once you hit 90, 95 dB, the outer hair cells go passive. So your sense of quiet is changing, but your sense of loud doesn't. And so I go, many of you have relatives who are hard of hearing. And the classic scenario is, speak up, speak up. Oh, you don't have to yell. And they all nod their head. I go, that's recruitment. Mm -hmm. That's recruitment. And, I'll, and, and so I say, so... So, okay, so you damage the cells according to the frequency, and what you lose at that frequency is dynamic range. So all of a sudden, these music and audio students realize it's not just losing volume. Mm -hmm. It's a frequency distortion. It's a frequency response distortion. It's a dynamic distortion. It's like, and, but they totally get it. Yeah, you make it so practical and three-dimensional. That is why... You are such a good teacher, explainer, lecturer, because you you know how to speak to that audience. Well, that, I, I, that I, is a such a skill. It's music to my ears. <laughs> well, I had a wonderful compliment many years ago when the seminar was in its earliest years, and um, Brian Flieger introduced me and now uh, uh, Carolyn Smacka. So Brian said, you should do a, a webcast on audiologyonline.com because I'm the moderator and I want you as a guest. I said, yeah. what am I going to tell audiologists that they don't already know? And he said, no, you give it a different meaning. Yeah. So Brian is another pivotal person. I mean, I was, I was like, I heard about Brian Flagger. This guy's awesome. I'm talking to Brian Flagger. Oh, my God. So I was a little starstruck at first. Well, we're good friends now. But more importantly, he convinced me to do this webinar. And, and I'll, I'll never forget it because so this was, so this is a webinar. And so I had never considered, okay, I'm going to do a slideshow and just talk and I can't be with my audience. And then I went, it's radio. Yeah. So I basically did what was, you know, basically an early podcast. <laughs> anyway, the responses were 
amazing. Yeah. I mean, people going, this has changed the way I'm going to address my practice. And this is audiologists talking. Yep. So anyway, Carolyn then says, I'd like to see your seminar. She came to my one of my NYU seminars. Oh, cool. I, I've, 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 I've spoken at NYU every year since 2008. So mm-hmm. Carolyn came to one of my seminars, and then I'm, I'm talking to high school students mm-hmm. at this point. This is like the summer, summer program, and I'm, and I'm teaching high school kids about their hearing. And I finished the, the seminar, and some kids come up to me. Afterwards, she goes, I've never heard such thoughtful questions, and I've never heard anybody explain the cochlea in five minutes. That is a good compliment. <laughs> it was really Dude, pretty cool. That's speaking to your quality as a presenter. Is, is well, I'm a song and dance man. It's so good. <laughs> I'm into the theater. <laughs> but your total understanding of the topic and you know your um, proficiency in how to express it through language and using the different language that musicians have, but you're also talking yeah. the language that audiologists know. Right. So it's bridging the gap and hearing it that way. You know, I feel like I learned just so much more each time I hear all of this, but I can only imagine it does even more for uh, musicians and new uh, up-and-coming audiologists. Yeah. I describe it as saying, we all really speak the same language, just different dialects. It's, it's a good way of putting it. Sure. We all speak the same language. Yeah. Energy, frequency, time. Those are the three domains of sound. And every audio engineer knows it, and we have graphical situations that explain energy, frequency, and time. Musicians have it. It's called a score, <laughs> right? And audiologists have it in, in forms of, oh, here's the audiogram, and here's tuning curves. <laughs> you know, Each of us have our own understanding of these domains of sound and audio and hearing that civilians, that's what I call people who don't know this stuff, just can't understand. Acoust- acousticians do. They get it. It is you know, very, very foreign to civilians. The last piece to the seminar. So once they've got all armed with all this understanding, I don't think about, nobody thinks about hearing and sound. Now I think I understand a little bit of how the ear works and how it breaks. Then the last piece is, so what are the hazards? Rock music. <laughs> how about sporting events? How about jet skis? How about the military? How about, you know, and so I literally go through all these different non-music as well as music. Marshall Chasen has a wonderful chart of how loud acoustic instruments can get. Mm-hmm. Michael Santucci will say it. And, and, you know, classical musicians suffer more hearing loss than pop musicians. What? They work more. <laughs> They're always practicing, right? Um, and then the last piece becomes, you know, concert. Okay, what do I do? Well, here are plugs, musicians' plugs. Here's in ear monitors. Here's the DB check. And then I finish with this very simple statement. I said, look, in the mid '60s, the Surgeon General stamped a, p- a warning on the pack of a side of cigarettes. Forty years later, we got to smoke-free environments. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in the, the mid-90s, we started saying, yeah, this may be a problem. Well, it's going to be 40 years in, this, in the same way. So, so we're starting to creep to that. And so um, you know, that's kind of how I finish, I finish the seminar. And I say, ultimately, it's up to you. You've got the information. Now, what are you going to do with it? You're going to use it. You're going to care. You can care. You cannot care. But it's, it's entirely up to you, which I think is, in the end, the key to what I try to do. And it gets to the whole issue of ownership. 
That's powerful. I want to walk away with people feeling like, okay, I got to take care of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to take care of my hearing. Nobody else is going to take care of my hearing. Right. That's inspiring. That's it's 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 optimistic, but it's also it's inspiring because it kind of lights a fire under you, right? It's like, well, now now I can't. And it's move. the truth. Yeah. People wear helmets on motorcycles because they want to take care of themselves, and they realize, well, I like riding without. Yeah, well, I like loud sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like a nice loud concert every now and then. You know, Michael Lawrence is helping us work around that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, you know, you know, we have finally learned that some things we like aren't necessarily good for us. I, I will say this, and uh, I really see a change. It was epiphanal driving down to Chicago, listening to Signal to Noise, the two episodes with you and the episode with Heather, and then hearing Michael in the background going, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, and then hearing Michael on your podcast, and I'm going, this stuff's moving. And to hear about Tuned, what a perfect scenario, what a perfect venue for you. I'm thinking, well, how, how, get me on Tuned, but that's not really my venue. That's, <laughs> that's really a healthcare environment. Uh, but maybe Tuned would be interested because it's a way of getting people understand. I mean, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Hey, it's not a bad idea. It's brilliant. Somewhere in this new hybrid communications environment, mm-hmm. my own term, <laughs> um, thinking about in-person versus online. Yeah, so, somewhere in there is a formula that will, that will work. I think what I bring to the, to the party is this background that was deep into music in all through grade school and high school and marching band and jazz band and blues band and I find out later my dad used to play piano bar I mean it was like it's just inside me right um, and then technology kind of found its way in and my my, my you know I got my first tape recorder when I was freshman in, in college getting involved in the radio station musicianship is in me live sound is in me studio sound is in me and then the past 20 years just really kind of adding the hearing sciences It's just all fun and it all fits. I show my kids my audiograms, three audiograms when I was in, still in grad school, I think four years later and four years later again, and you can see the change, right? My last audiogram was with Heather and we went to 15K no response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, she turned it up and I hit the ceiling. She goes, that's recruitment. I said, oh, wow, cool. That's recruitment. <laughs> Again, just in terms of the, the progression of, of, of experiences, was I got to know Michael at the right time to be fitted for my first set of custom plugs that I was able to preserve my hearing for a good 20 years. Mm-hmm. So you're blaming Michael Santucci also. I blame him for a lot of stuff, but you're blaming oh, him. Oh, of course, for- of course. But I, but I think, you know, and so how are yours now? They're not great. Mm-hmm. Um, I have continuous tinnitus. It's louder in my right ear than my left. Um, I've actually think I've had tinnitus most of my life. Very, very, very subtle. Um, but I had kind of an auditory accident with a chainsaw two years ago. Um, and that really, that was like, oh man, I screwed up. I really screwed up. I, I, I felled a really big tree 
and I had muffs on, but they weren't, I didn't have a good seal and I thought it was good enough and it wasn't. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm, I've become my own poster child, but some of my hearing loss is hereditary. Mm-hmm. My mother lost her hearing. She grew up in the Republic of Panama. I don't think she ever went to any loud concerts. And so, but, but still suffered loss. My dad was in the military. He definitely suffered loss, but that was military based. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, a part of what I, I bring to the party now is my personal experiences. And so, like I say, I show, I show my kids my audiograms. Look, here I am, you know, when I was 50, really good. Of course, that's a combination of being careful because I wasn't going to a lot of loud concerts was a live sound engineer, but I don't know how loud it got at Amazing Grace, but I know it wasn't debilitatingly loud. 95, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Pat Metheny got loud too, I'm sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, he could get loud. Yeah. Uh, Pat's rig was very, very loud, you know, and I knew, I knew from, from Steve Rodby, who played bass for him, and Steve and I are old friends. And Steve just talked about, you know, he wore custom plugs on the stand playing for Pat. And he told me one day about the day he forgot his plug, got onto stage and realized he didn't have his plugs. And the agony of, of playing a set on stage with no protection. Yeah. It just happens. Again, it's, I'm, I'm not blaming Pat. For, I'm not blaming anybody for anything. Completely. It's all circumstantial. Do I feel bad that I screwed myself up by dropping a really, you know, a 200, 100-foot tall tree with, not, with inadequate protection? Yeah, I feel bad. Well, I got over it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it does teach the point, which, I mean, you don't want experience to be your only teacher, but it teaches the point of the fragility and the amazingness of our hearing system. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. And, and then in turn, it changes the way then you talk about it. So it's not a for nothing experience, right? It, cha- oh, it makes it. No, I, I take advantage of the unfortunate experience that I had, <laughs> <laughs> right? To say it can happen in an instant. Yeah. Yeah. You can be you know, careful yes. until that moment that you're not. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And I was always very, very, very careful. And I use a lot of machinery up north, yeah. you know, tractors and chainsaws and leaf blowers and just all kinds of small. I've become a, I've become a big on small engine repair. <laughs> but anyway. I'm big on um, small engine repair. looks like a t-shirt to me. <laughs> You mentioned DB weighting curves, which is usually when people who, as you put it, civilians uh, mentally check out. But it's such an important conversation, and it relates to something that musicians know, which is EQ curves. And civilians understand filters on cameras and pictures. But the way that you explain it, you make it understandable. Right. So I want to lay you the floor. Why DBA and why maybe something else sometimes? Okay. The different curves typically get used by different practitioners. Mm-hmm. Nobody uses perfectly flat. It's usually C or A. C is used by acousticians. They want an accurate, objective measurement. DBA is a curve which kind of harkens back to Harvey Fletcher, an EQ adjustment that sort of conforms. And I'm saying sort of because you look at the curve and say, well, that doesn't look like Fletcher Munson. And that doesn't even look like the EQ curves of the outer ear. So no, 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 it just is. It's just, it's, it's providing some degree of compensation or adjustment for the sort of natural EQ of the auditory system. Once you end there, you go, look, DBA is what we have been using for however many years. Mm-hmm. That's our system. I don't care that it, whether it's accurate, truly accurate or not, but it is the basis of 
all the research that's been done, all of the analysis has been done, NIOSH, OSHA, that whole thing of the 70s when they looked at 1,100 workers in the auto industry and looked at what their exposure was and how loud was the piece of machinery and it was how many hours, you know, and it's groundbreaking seminal research that got us to the point that we had some sense of what's the risk at different sound pressure levels. So the bottom line is, it's DBA. Mm -hmm. What Don't you want DBC? No, <laughs> because it doesn't relate to hearing risk. Because this is what, this is the calibrated tool that was used. This is simply the standard that we use. Is it the best standard? No, it's what we came up with. And we've been using it ever since. Yeah. You, can, you can get all, I don't know, technically ethical about, well, it's not really right. I said, it doesn't really matter. Mm, that's a good point. It's a measurement system by which we have learned to assess hearing trauma risk. It'd be like if somebody came along and said the inch is actually just slightly shorter than the inch that we've been using for all these years. Well, yeah, yeah. This is more accurate inch. Why change it now? Well, okay. Who's going to use it? Yeah. I mean, even talk about English versus metric. Yeah. It's not exactly the same because both are really precise, but it's like we in the States have a sense of what one inch and one foot and one mile are. Mm -hmm. And you go across the big pond and it's like, ah, okay, I English is like DBA <laughs> and metric is like DBC because metric, the, the relationship between volume and temperature, you know, it all makes sense in metric. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean anything to us. No, it'll mess up your plumbing if we all change. <laughs> exactly, you know, or everything that you do. But I think that I appreciate people who want people to understand that there are different weighting curves mm -hmm. so that they realize, oh, this meter is switchable. <laughs> mm -hmm. What should yeah. I be? Oh, I should be using A. Yeah. I love when Michael Lawrence uses weighting curves as a means of getting somebody to realize, oh, I guess I don't really know what I'm saying when I say yep. 90 dB. What do you mean? DBA, DBC, what are you talking about? You know? And so I think it's a, it's a nice, uh, you know, you don't know what you think you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that's good. But in the end, DBA, it's what all the research is using as a measurement tool. You have to keep the same measurement. Though. That's, that's a really great answer. Because well, that's, that's our speedometer. And maybe this is a call to some PhD acoustician out there. Redo all those seminal research studies and all the different weighting scales, and then we can get past it. <laughs> well, I had, a, I had an interesting experience. I was talking to one of the design engineers at Knowles, Knowles Electronics, you know, maker of, of, of sub-miniature microphones and, and speakers, basically to understand the sound pressure levels uh, for music. Loud music is up around 90, 95. Anyway, it turns out he was talking DBC and I was talking DBA. And finally, you know, I, sa I said, no, 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 wait a minute. This is DBA. He says, and, he, and if for a moment he said, well, why, why aren't you using DBC? I said, because that's the standard we use in hearing. Yep. And then he went, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know we, we have different rulers. And as long as we're looking at the same thing, we won't crash the spaceship. That's the key, right? If we're looking at different things, then stuff right. hits the moon by right. accident or hit Mars. Yeah. Right. Whoops. Um, the other th conversation that we wanted to get back to was the conversation of risk assessment and what the NIOSH best, pra best practice standards of an exchange rate and how loud is too loud and, and who can we keep safe at 85 yep. versus what OSHA, I was going to say gives us, but that's not yep. what OSHA leaves us with. Okay. 
All this research was done, longitudinal study, auto industry workers, perfect scenario, right? Somebody standing in front of a piece of machinery for six hours, eight hours, however many day, and now we're going to measure their hearing over a number of years to see, well, who's suffering loss, who isn't, and correlate it to how loud the machine was and how long they were exposed. And so we had, and this was NIOSH, mm-hmm. National Institute of Occupational Safety Institute. They are the study people. Wonderful people in, in, in Cincinnati. I met a bunch of them. I had a chance to hang out with them. Geniuses. They issued those guidelines that start at 85 dB with a 3 dB exchange rate. Every 3 dB increases your risk by a factor of two. So NIOSH hands OSHA that chart. And OSHA goes, forget it. No way. <laughs> Nobody's going to be able to follow this. Are you crazy? You know. But what OSHA did, or whether it was OSHA and or NIOSH, OSHA, I'll say OSHA did this. I said, wait a minute. This is what is safe for 97% of your sample. Mm-hmm. So there's still a 3% group that is still going to suffer loss, even with the NIOSH curves. Yeah. So OSHA said, okay, what if we rework the data, same sample, same data, but let's rework it and figure out what, was safe, what would be safe for 75% of the population? And that's where the OSHA chart comes in. 90 dB at eight hours and a 5 dB exchange rate. So the bottom line is, are you part of the 25% or the 75%? Mm-hmm. To which I go, there's no measurement for, for risk. Yep. The only thing you can do is get an audiogram, get a baseline, go back in a year or two and see where you are. Is there no change? And, and, and it literally, it's, there's nothing more you can do than say, okay, whatever I'm doing, it's good. Or, uh-oh, there's loss. Yeah. And so we get to something that Michael Santucci is doing, and I'm sure more and more audiologists are doing, is says, okay, well, we, re- we did a profile on you when you came in for your baseline. Let's look at your profile. Mm-hmm. It gets back to the individual. It's like, you got to go and get tested. Oh, Freddie! You know, and 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 I I love when both Heather, you and Heather, and 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 uh, and Laura, and I'm sure Juan, you get the same thing. Oh, I, I don't want to know. <laughs> it's like, what are you nuts? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Of course you want to know, because most likely it's not as bad as you think, which we all know is usually the case. Oh, it wasn't that bad. But the bottom line is, the only way you can assess your own risk is through audiometric testing. Mm-hmm. That is the only way. And then it's interesting too with the whole OSHA versus NIOSH because a lot of a lot of audiologists get really grumpy about you know that OSHA is giving such leniency and allowing it's 25%. It's not Right. It's, you know, go ahead. Yeah, and they're allowing, because this is terms that I've, I've heard said before, and we have to kind of pull back a little bit. They, they, we say that they're allowing 25% to get hurt. But <laughs> there is another stipulation within the OSHA law that with the annual exams, like you just mentioned, uh-huh. with, if you get annual exams, if you then show change, then we start using 85 as your starting point and requiring hearing protection devices. And so the idea being, well, okay, well, 25% of people, they're gonna get a change, but we're gonna act upon it quickly. And so to your point, the hearing test is the 
deciding factor as to who needs additional care. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that is our only way of knowing. From that point, we go to, well, okay, your typical pure tone thresholds. And, I'm, and I, I think I said this, I don't know if I said this, but I was just delighted to see posts on LinkedIn from, from, uh, uh, from Heather showing yeah. an audiogram that goes out to 15K and 16K. I can't remember what it goes out to. I said, finally. Yeah, she and I test up to 16. <laughs> Something musicians 16K. and audio engineers can appreciate, you know, for all the rest of the civilians out there. Um, I just think it's really, really important for, for that basic understanding. Everybody's susceptible. You know, some people have good knees for running. Some people have bad knees for running. That's everybody's physiology is different. Yeah, that's my excuse. Exactly, mine too. I blew my <laughs> knees out when I was when I was in my twenties, and I couldn't. I used to run two miles every morning. To circle back to this damage risk, and yeah. we just talked about industrial exposure. We deal, you and I and probably most of the listeners here deal in the uh, unregulated industry of music. OSHA does not apply. Right. The OSHA rules, the OSHA laws do not apply to the noise exposures of entertainment industry folks yeah. from a regulatory from, standpoint. From a, from a regulatory so then a lot of the question comes up, do right. we... But they are, but, but, they're, but they're a good guy. Exactly. So then the mm -hmm. question comes up, do the audiologists, do the yeah. people who are well-meaning, we're trying to guide people to protect their ears, do we stick to, you got to stick to NIOSH rulings or do we stick to, do we got to stick to OSHA rulings? And I love not to keep name dropping Michael Santucci, who's, uh, you know, our Sherpa through a lot of this. He goes, stick to the one that you, you can follow. And if they can follow OSHA, we're at least following a guide. Yeah. And I, I've come to agree with that. Yep. Right. I think um, they should get rid of the NIOSH OSHA header on the chart. Just have this chart. Say, here's a 97% chart. Here's oh, a 75% nice. like chart. Rather than feeling like there's some organization, you know, some deep state <laughs> thing happening, right? Look, here's, here's, the, here's the research. What's in this government know? cheese? Here's what, yeah, right, exactly. Here's what 75% of us are safe for, mm -hmm. but here's what 97% of us are safe for. My suggestion to audiologists, when it becomes a, a noise exposure issue, the first thing you show them is this chart that just has these two exposure yeah. rates. Say, so, well, we're not, we don't know what fits you. I don't know, we, I don't know where you are. Here's where, here's where mm -hmm. you might be here and you might and be then here. To, and then to quote a, a previous guest um, that I had on this show, I, I don't know if you've listened to his, but um, I think it was uh, Ben Runyon who explained the concept of uh, terminal uniqueness, how everybody who ends up being injured by something thinks that they are the only <laughs> one who's ever experienced this problem. And they are going to be that one out of a million who gets the blank and blank blank happen to them. And so I could just imagine if you show a bunch of uh, patients that chart, people are going to look at that and be like, well, even if I follow the 97%, I'm still going to be that 3% who gets hurt. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, the bottom line is, you know, if you're going for 100%, you know, the eight-hour exposure would be 75. Which there, I guess maybe that's the end result then. You have the three layers. Well, maybe maybe, maybe it would be, you know, if that data is still available, maybe that they should do that. You know, but the, but then I guess what you, you go to is, I never remember what it is. There's a there's a number they say, what what level is safe at, at any I, exposure? I want to say it's like 78 yeah, or something. Yeah, for 24 you know, hours. Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, so I don't know, 78 with a 3 dB exchange rate. Okay, try and follow that one, buddy. Jeez. Bottom line, I think um, softening the, the, the presentation 
of the exposure risk chart makes it easier for the patient to go, oh, this is what happens if I smoke a pack a day. This is what happens if I only smoke a couple cigarettes a day, <laughs> you know? I, I actually, I think it actually promotes a little bit of a sense of ownership. And it's reachable goals too. One of these is yeah. you. We don't know yet. Well, we're gonna figure that out. How, how are we gonna figure that out? You're gonna let me test you now, and then you're gonna come back in a year. Mm-hmm. And then we're gonna know. Yeah, no, that's... It's... <laughs> and then the patient walks away going, oh, okay. Well, I just have to wait. <laughs> wait and like want to come back. I said, and, and what do I do? Don't do anything different. Do whatever you do, because you may be fine. But we won't know until you come back. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually quite quite smart. Mm-hmm. Again, to out there to all the audiologists out there, I want to take credit for this because I gave it to Brian Flieger. Oh, it's got to be eight, eight or nine years ago when I visited him when he was still working at Boston yeah. Children's. You, we, we need to think of the audiologist the same way we think of the mm-hmm. dentist. You don't go to the dentist when your tooth is aching and you need to have it pulled. You go to the dentist to prevent that tooth from aching and needing mm-hmm. to have it pulled. And for the listener, I am fully aware that there's a fire truck behind Benj. I like the sound of that. <laughs> I think oh, it sounds yeah, nice. Oh, yeah, sorry. I keep, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not going to cut that. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I could I could just give it to you. No, again. I'm okay. <laughs> you see, this is the nice thing about a podcast versus uh, some kind of sterile media. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with hearing a dog bark or a fire. Okay, truck. that's good. No, no, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Right. Yeah, I live in I live in downtown Chicago. That's where I live half my hey, life. Because anyway. sound, look, um, the sound setting around us is it's what places us in a space and. I actually enjoy hearing that on a mic is because it places you in the space. It's nice. But I, I like to ask this question. I mean, you've heard it at NHCA. I like to ask it to my students, but a lot of the people that I ask it to have never heard it before. So I'm curious your answer. I ask people what your favorite sound is. And what is Benj Cantor's answer? Oh, there are a lot of them. Um, one of my favorite sounds, the Chicago Fire Rescue Academy is about four blocks south of me. The academy troops would be jogging down the street mm. and they would sort of precede them and follow them with a couple of fire trucks quietly moving to basically shut the street down. Yeah. A rolling street block and they were chanting. It was kind of like a cadence chant. And it was just the coolest, coolest thing. Oh, that's cool. But um, I love loons. Oh, yeah. And we have a cup. We have a family of loons on the lake that we live on up in the UP. And that's and 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 part of the reason is because I went to a summer camp in in central Ontario in Algonquin Park, and loons were part of the soundscape of of camp. So it was it was wild when. Um, my wife took me to the UP for the first time because her sister used to have a cabin up there. And I'm going, this is like camp. <laughs> so It's nostalgic. That's a beautiful haunting sound, the loon. Oh yeah, oh no, no, it is, it is an amazing sound. basically already answered this and I ask it as just a simple two-word question because I like the open-endedness of this. (laughs) Um, 
Why loud? Okay. Yeah. And I'll give it to you from an audiological standpoint. Cool. When the outer hair cells shut down, something happens up in the 90s is when outer hair cells go passive. That's when it's loud. Hmm. I'm not saying that's necessarily, you know, why loud? Why? Because I think, I think there's, a, there's a certain, a, 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 a universal sense of loud. I'm just saying, and again, this, I have no basis for this, but something's going on up at that point. You know, where the cochlear amplifier is no longer needed and it's all inner hair cells at that point. But the other thing about loud, and again, I'm looking for some, some confirming research, but I saw something and I, still, I, can't, I saw it and I've never gone back. It was called saccular hearing. Uh-huh, yeah. That you can see it in the literature. Everybody mm -hmm. talks about helicotrema and that it's basically a low-pass filter at 200 hertz. Mm -hmm. And I and to me, that's why we don't test 125 because it's not in the cochlea anymore. It's in the vestibular system. The otolithic crystals at low frequencies, they're getting shaken. It explains why the EQ curves on Santucci's in-ear monitors has this rising low end. Mm -hmm. Something else happens when we start shaking the vestibular system. There's an endorphin response. You know, we talk about that. Yeah, there's something going on that is associated with 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 loud. And I feel like you're getting to like a uh, like an evolution. Well, yeah, absolutely. And there. and and we get into the yeah. into into the cognitive studies and stuff that Nina Krauss is, is talking about, and 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 Dan Levitin especially. You know, oh, rhythm that. is in the cerebellum, the most primitive part of the brain is where rhythm is being. You know, is it any wonder we get? mystical and trance dance and all that kind of stuff when you got this heavy low end beat. But I, but yeah. I also talk to my students who, who go to some, you know, you know, electronic music concerts. My favorite example is uh, excision, this EM artist. He's in a 4,000 seat venue with 150 K in the subs alone. Jeez. And I go, <laughs> Do you get dizzy? And they go, yeah, I get dizzy. There you go. <laughs> and that's fun. That's your sack. You're getting shaked. Yeah. You know? And I saw the term, again, I don't know where, and I can't find it, vestibular hyperacusis. Mm -hmm. yep. Hair cell stress. It's not just in yep. the cochlea. It can be in the vestibular system as well. It's so, there's not enough research in it. Um, there certainly isn't. There is so much about music exposure that we just don't understand. Mm-hmm. So much of the research, obviously, NIOSH and OSHA, is based on steady-state noise exposure. Mm -hmm. Music is neither steady-state nor constant frequency. Yeah. It is dynamically diverse from constant, you know, from, from steady-state to impulse noise. How do you quantify that? Mm -hmm. What you need is literally a multi-band LEQ yeah. that is fast enough to, ex to, to present impulse noise because of the kick drum or the slapping bass note. And all we're doing right now is measuring gunfire. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a great point. So, you know, and so it gets to the point where we say, well, what are we going to do? I say, we're going to work with the tools that we have. Yep. It's called DBA. That's all we got. <laughs> you know? It's called LEQ. Yeah. And again, so what am I going to do with it? I don't know, but I'm just going to be more aware of it. Mm -hmm. As a sound engineer, as, an, as, a, as a musician, I'm going to be as conscious of the EQ as as much as I am of the overall loudness or level. Mm -hmm. 
That's such a good point. And at any given moment, the peaks and valleys, like if you looked at the spectrum, at any given moment, industrial noise is a flat line-ish. Yeah, exactly. Versus music is spikes. It's comb filters. It's yep. harmonics. And it's sharp, specific notes yep. by definition. So it's like getting hit in the face with like a flat rock versus like a pointy, you know. Well, it's going to be all those things. It's going to be a flat rock. It's going to be a pointy rock. You're going to get drenched in water. You're going to, you know. It's it's, chaos. It's it's chaos. Yeah. But like, you know, conspired chaos. Now, it's, 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 well, I was going to say it's, it's ordered, which is why we call it music. But when you look at it on on a, a more simplistic level, you go, well, it's all these different kinds of, of spectral and dynamic stimuli mm-hmm. experiences. Cause I love this part of the tone cause it really gets smooth. And I love this part of the tone cause it's just, it's kicking me in the head and you know, you know, so, okay. So how do you measure that? That's so cool. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> Ben, this is so fun. So fun. Well, Frank, you have brought great joy to my day. Yes. To, to be able to talk about this stuff with you and Juan. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk with us because it's oh, no, always such a delight. So thank you so much. It's, it's, a, it's a joy for me. Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. The theme music is by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. Additional production and editing assistance is by Juan Vasquez and Mary Kim. Thanks for listening. <laughs>